Five Days New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday Nightmare Podcast. Woo. And before we get to the end, which I'm staring me right in the face, which is, a taste, <laughs> which is going to be a tasting of some interesting beverages we've procured, which we'll talk about later. Uh, let's talk about hops. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, this has been a thing for years now, but I think, you know, Zach, it's, it's probably even more pervasive for you than it is for us just because mm-hmm. you live in like the world of hops. Um, I do. Since so many of them are grown in the Pacific Northwest in which a lot of brewers now have taken to labeling their beers with the hop varieties. Right. Um, and, you know, I've actually, I, I tend to wonder if this is actually more polarizing for beer drinkers, if it is more intimidating, especially as hops become more and I guess, especially as there are more and more varieties of hops, right? So mm-hmm. like I've often wondered, do I now need to try to understand like what Cascade or Chinook, et cetera, actually are going to do this beer do I, do I understand, like, I'll see a big beer list and I'll be like, oh, this is our IPA with Cascade and some other random hop you never heard of. And this is our one with this and this. And I'll be like, okay, well, I don't know what to choose actually. And is beer going to unfortunately make a mistake with all this obsession with hops? Or is this a good thing for beer? Like, I wonder, because I think one of the things that I've always, I think people love about beer and craft beer is its accessibility, right? And it's sort of non-pretension. Like I've always also been really sort of suspect of the whole Cicerone thing. Like wh- why do that? Right. Like beer is, why are we trying to somify beer? Right. And yeah. I, I, I think that it's fine to become a beer expert and I want to, and I respect beer experts, but like we don't need a bunch of Cicerones. And so do we need a bunch of hops? I don't know where I fall on the, do we need the hop labeling, but it's the one, my one sort of, trepidation in doing it is does it start to make people you know more intimidated by beer or is it just cool because everyone's getting more into beer and like hot varieties are cool I, I don't know I think that's a good question I think when I when I think of all these hops and putting it on the cans or whatever um I feel like that's for like craft beer people Nerds. like enthusiasts like Geeks. yeah you're like showing off if you can say we have like I don't know. Galaxy. So many t- Citra hops. Is, <laughs> yeah. that, is that really yeah. common? Yeah. Okay. Oh, was that good? Yeah. Great. Um, but like, I just feel like IP, it's so like super saturated now, right? Like there are so many beers out there, so many craft brewers, like you have to show your skill by all these different hops that you use. Is that right? Like, is that why they're doing it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a show like we have, I mean, so Zach, you again, like I said, live in hop world. I but do. I feel like a lot of the times, unless you're using... Like I think Citra is a pretty prevalent hop, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but if you are able to get gain access to some of the harder to procure hops, yeah, it's a badge of like this is in our oh, shit. Oh, it's, it's a flex. It's, it's a, flex. a straight flex. Yeah. It's a hot flex. It's a hot flex, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that work here all at once. One of them is like an undeniable like wineification of beer. I guess yes, you would say 100%. it, or kind of like mm-hmm. like just some mm-hmm. kind of creep that's happening where like. Yeah, some breweries definitely make single hop variety IPAs, and they might want you to know that. Now, could most beer drinkers, even pretty dedicated beer drinkers, sit down and tell you, ah, yes, this beer has Centennial hops in it. This beer has Chinook. This beer has, you know, Mosaic, et cetera, all the, you know, all the other ones we can name and many more beyond that. 
I don't know. Maybe brewers can, maybe real devotees can, but so like so many fewer people can do that. And and frankly, so many people like you know, someone a wine drinker, a casual wine drinker might know, okay, Pinot Noir is light bodied and Cabernet Sauvignon is full bodied, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But I don't think most people could tell you galaxy hops are like this and mosaic hops are like yeah. that. Like there's just much less understanding of what that means. But because it's on the label, it's on the description, there is in doing that, you imply to the drinker that they should know what the difference is, right? Mm-hmm. They should know whether they prefer centennial hops or or mosaic hops yeah. or whatever, right? And that is a that is a thing that is under the guise of saying, we're just giving you more information. You are kind of, in fact, making people feel dumb because they don't know what to do right, with that right. information. Yeah. And it, to me, is analogous sometimes in wine to what I find incredibly frustrating, which is like when you go to a, you know, a, a winery or you go to some kind of event and all the person talking to you about the wine can do is like essentially recite the technical data of the wine. And it's like, okay, but like 99% of people don't know what the fuck it matters mm-hmm. and how it will affect the wine mm-hmm. if it was nine months on lees versus six months on lees or if it was in 20% new French oak versus oh, they have like, no clue. That's all, that's all data that's like, is it good? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like it's data that like you should have as the winery in case someone asks, but it should not be the way you present your wine. And yet I went wine tasting recently and especially at one of the wineries, like the sheet you get is like full of full of all this technical data. And you're like, I mean, I as a professional can look at that and, you know, infer something from that. But even then, I don't really like what matters is what the wine tastes like. It's mm-hmm. not so much matters to me, you know, the specifics of how it was made. And the same thing is true with beer. And it's even more the case with with hops, I think in in beer because they're an ingredient. They're not the base ingredient. You know, they're an, a, a flavor addition. But and so, some people would say they're the main ingredient in in certain styles of beer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, they have a huge impact on the flavor. And I don't mean to say that there's no difference in these hop varieties. I think there very clearly is. There are differences, but whether those differences are perceptible or comprehensible or understood by the beer drinking public, I, I am very dubious. Of. Well, that's what I think. I think, I mean, you would have to drink like a fuck ton of, you know, one style of hop. And I get it that the brewer does that mm-hmm. and maybe a beer expert does that. But yeah, for, for me, I can't say that I've drank so much of one style of hop that I could tell you the difference. Like if you blinded me. Yeah. I would love to do like a, a tasting or like a yeah. flight or something where I could compare. And then I think that's interesting, but just like going to order a beer, I'm like, I, It'd be hard. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like your point, Zach, that you were saying about all the information with wine. It's like, you know, we say there are like questions that become trendy that I don't even think most professionals understand. Like yeah. my one that I love to pick on is all the, you know, a wine professional is like, is this, is this a natural yeast fermentation or is this uh, yeah. or did you inoculate? I'm like, mm. do you actually know <laughs> the difference of what would happen if one or the other? I, I, can you tell me you can actually pick it out? Can you can you blind a wine and tell me that you know that it was natural yeast fermentation or inoculated? You cannot. I fucking promise you. And yeah. th- this is sort of the same with some of the hot varieties where it's like I just don't think most people can pick it out. I don't. Well, and it's also more complicated because beer asks now of you not just – what style of beer do you like, right. right? Do you prefer a Pilsner or an IPA? But now if you say I like an IPA, well, okay, do you want a West Coast IPA, a New England IPA? And now do you want your West Coast IPA with X hop variety or your your hazy IPA with Y variety? Like it, it's getting to a point where it's like, who is all this differentiation for, right? Who does it benefit? I don't know. I do think it f- makes it all feel uh, very intimidating. Yes, it does. 
as, as someone who likes beer and is interested in trying different things like I, yeah. I mean, and that's, I, I have to say, I think it also has become even more prevalent with the New England mm-hmm. IPA craze, yeah. right? Like, cause you know, I'm a haze boy. And uh, Me too. <laughs> I, I love them so much, <laughs> but like, you know, it's uh, I think because you're now trying even more to stand out of like, okay, well we know we need hazies on our list, right. but we want to make five different hazies because we can't just have one. The way to, to have all your different varieties is like, well, this one was with this hops. This one was with that hops. And like, you know, I think that's just, as opposed to, you know, back in the day, like you had some of the OG breweries like bells, et cetera. It was like, this is our, IPA. This is our double. This is our triple. Like, yeah, that's all. Like, and you kind of know, okay, cool. Like, the double is going to be more aggressive, you know, or dogfish. This is our 60. This is our 90. This is our 120. Like, you just kind of knew what you were getting into. It's going to be a little yeah. more bitter and way boozier. And that was about it. They weren't also saying, and this one's made with Cascade and this is Galaxy and this is all those different things. It's, it's the only way that the hazies can sort of differentiate themselves, especially for one brewery, right? And I think that along to, to bring this back to the kind of the parallel to wine, it also raises a fundamentally important question to me, which is like, is your beer better because it's, you know, a mono varietal hop or is it not? Like, I tend to find that, you know, when I do pay attention to these things, I generally prefer it when beers have more than one hop variety in them because no one hop variety produces all the flavors or smells that I want in a beer. And yet when you put this emphasis on individual varieties, you sort of drive people mm. to associate a single variety with something more premium or or mm. or more special or more distinctive. And in, and the same has happened in wine. You know, we are living in this era of monovarietal wine, even w- like for monovarietal wine's sake, I think, which is unfortunate. Um, and I think we are in that realm now with a lot of these beers too, where, as you said, Adam, the way to differentiate your beers is to say, this is with this hop and this is this hop. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think often the best beer probably that the brewery makes is going to be their, if you like hazies, they're hazy that's made with multiple hops because you're going to get a more balanced, expressive kind of complex experience. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you're about to talk to a hop grower. I am the biggest hop grower in the country. In so let's see what they have to say. And uh, maybe don't tell them that you don't think that individual hops are <laughs> a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to keep it out of my mouth. From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today I'm speaking with Ryan Hopkins, who's the CEO of Yakima Chief Hops uh, in the Yakima Valley here in Washington State. Ryan, how you doing? Hey, Zach, doing great today. I'm, uh, I'm I'm live from the Great Valley of Yakima. Yeah, yeah, right in the middle of, of the harvest. Yes, <laughs> we are in. Uh, depending on where you're at, but yeah, we're we're right at the peak, the crescendo. So the uh, the second half of harvest is is in sight. Very cool. Well, we appreciate your time. I know it's obviously uh, uh, busy. How how did you? So let's start with a little bit of this. How did you kind of get into the hot business? Um, I assume it wasn't just about your last name. It was not. No, they. A lot of people have tried to tell me that's why, and <laughs> maybe there's some cosmic being that, that created that to happen. But no, I, I actually grew up here in the valley okay. um, many many moons ago, and one of my first jobs in high school was drying hops out in the Max Moxie area. Okay. Uh, so I guess that's when hops officially got into my blood back in the '90s, and. Unbeknownst to me, uh, about 20 years later, I came back to work for Yakima Chief uh, and set out on a, I was in a bit of a career change at that time. Uh, I was in higher education uh, prior to coming back into hops. And I'm incredibly 
honored and proud to be a part of this industry, a part of Yakima Chief Hops. Um, and I can tell you there's some just some very exciting things happening, not only uh, in the industry, but within this, this fine company. Awesome. Well, I look forward to getting into some of uh, some of that, but let's get a little bit of the backstory and the history first. So, so one thing that's that's true about Yakima Chief Hops is that it's grower owned. But can you can you talk a little bit about that and kind of just the history of the company itself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Yakima Chief Hops is one hundred percent grower owned, and that's uh, owned by hop growers, uh, which is a pretty it's a very unique thing in agriculture. It's a even more unique thing in hops. Um, in the 90s, we had three families that came together uh, with a couple of other families, and, and they just really wanted to change the way hops were purchased and placed into the market. Um, hops have been grown here in the U.S. for you know over 100 years, here in the Valley for over 100 years. And uh, many, many generations worked kind of uh, on a broker model, where there was a mm-hmm. broker in the middle making deals with uh, farmers on one side and brewers on the other. And we had some wise growers who had the foresight to say, wait a minute, we can do this ourselves. We want to, we want to create these relationships with brewers. We want to bring this uh, conversation directly to the brew house. And uh, so that started in the nineties. Okay. And uh, since then, several families have joined uh, this group. And now we are the largest hop broker in the U.S. Very cool. And uh, we definitely have a very clear vision to be the global supplier of choice. So right now we have 15 families who own the company. Okay. And we receive about half of our hops from our owners. Okay. And we receive the other half from non-owners. And the very cool thing about this company is that whether you're an owner or you're not an owner, you're treated exactly the same. Hmm. And uh, this model was 100% focused on returning the highest value back to the family farm. Okay. And because of that model, we've been very successful in creating value for growers, creating value for brewers. And uh, what we continually hear is that brewers and beer consumers want to know where their product's coming from. Mm -hmm. They want to know that it comes from a family farm. And that's provided us a lot of momentum uh, to where we're at today. Very cool. So let's let's go here. And then I want to talk about kind of the growing of hops. So what is it about Yakima Valley that makes it such a great place to grow hops because you know i think for people who are who've never been um or are unfamiliar it might be sort of surprising that so much of the country's hops are grown in one valley yeah well the yakima valley is is a unique place in that it has a a large access to irrigation okay Uh, so that's one factor water uh, these hops need a lot of water they're very thirsty uh, plants. So irrigation is a key component to what uh, occurs here in the Yakima Valley. Um, but hops are not only grown in the Yakima Valley, there's uh, several of our families who grow hops in Oregon in the Willamette Valley, and then out in Idaho in the Treasure Valley, just uh, west of Boise. So we, uh, we have families who are growing hops here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the largest growing region is here in the Yakima Valley. And a lot of that is due to access to irrigation, okay. uh, but more importantly, kind of in that uh, pr- 
parallel, the 47th parallel, uh, it's day length. Okay. So you can grow hops in any area, any climate, but in order to get the flowers, you really need a day length change. Mm. So hops are photo responsive. Okay. And that day length change that we get to experience here, you know, around the 47th parallel, um, is why they're so productive. Um, uh, in flowering. So pardon my ignorance. And I imagine the ignorance of, um, a lot of our listeners, but, but like from a, from a botanical sense, what are, what are hops and like, what are they related to? Yeah. Hops, hops are an, an amazing plant. They're one of the fastest growing plants. Okay. So you plant a root uh, or a rhizome, um, which is a perennial, it'll stay in the ground. There's some hop yards, uh, in the, in this fine value that are valley that are 50 years old. Wow. Uh, and then they grow annually. Okay. So they begin growth in, in the early season in uh, April. They sprout out of the ground. Um, twine, they climb a twine. Okay. So a hop is a vine, not a vine, uh, meaning that it needs something to climb on. Okay. okay. A vine will grow on itself. Uh, so we call them hop vines. Okay, and they uh, they travel up a string that is uh, tied by a person, uh, and they climb all the way up to the top of that uh, trellis, uh, large poles and cables and things, mm-hmm. and they do this in the midst of their growing season in July, June, and July. They're growing over a foot a day. Wow! So uh, a lot of people will sell, say that bull kelp is one of the fastest growing plants in the world and i would love to see the race if we could have both <laughs> competing i'm not kids. sure you could find uh like a you know neutral playing field no no unfortunately not so that that's it it's a it's a really impressive sturdy aggressive plant humulus lupulus is is its taxonomic name which some ways translates to dirt wolf and it's because of its aggressive growing nature I see. And you can see that in, in the fields when they grow so quickly and aggressively up. They are photoresponsive. So if you have a change in day length, like we do here in the Pacific Northwest and in Germany, England, Czechoslovakia, in the Northern Hemisphere, that's when you get these flowers. Okay. And uh, those flowers are what we are harvesting and what goes into beer. Gotcha. So a thing that I think is important to it has become imp- very important in the understanding of hops and especially how most of us relate to them in beer is this understanding of all these different varieties or strains or however you kind of talk about it. Has that always been a part of the hop growing business or or is this emphasis on on all these different named varieties something new? It has always been a part of the hop industry. Um, but traditionally, hops were bred and varieties were sought after for their alpha acids, the bittering mutants okay. uh, aspect of hops. So there were very few varieties. Um, as we got into the 70s through the 80s and 90s, more and more progression was around flavor and aroma okay. and hop breeding. And then that has become uh, very prolific, uh, a lot with our breeding program and others who have really pursued this uh, flavor and aroma profile and not just the alpha acids component of hops. Because traditionally in beer, hops were 
used more for their kind of ability to be a preservative, right? And, and, and flavoring agent, but, but that heightened bitterness was about, you know, keeping the beer drinkable longer more than, more than necessarily giving it the best possible flavor. Or is, is that wrong? No, that's correct. Yeah. Those preservative qualities uh, is why hops became part of uh, beer and early on with the pursuit of sending beer uh, from England to India, they would load up some of those barrels of beer uh, with extra hops so that they could travel by boats to make it to India, which then the wonderful beer style of the India pale ale came to life, Okay, which we all know and love here throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. Gotcha. And so... When that transition was happening and 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 uh, growers and breeders were looking at not so much just boosting alpha acids, um, but getting more flavor and aroma compounds, like we're how how does that work? Like, like what is I mean, maybe we don't need an in-depth uh, scientific explanation, but just kind of like how was it just a matter of trial and error? You know, uh, 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 someone would would cross to, you know, existing uh, varieties of hops and make a beer with it and hope, or, or can you, can you kind of assess that while the plant is growing or before a beer is made? So a couple of parts, it is crossing, uh, a male plant with female plants in order okay. to have, you know, s- separate offsprings plants of those. Okay. That is how breeding happens. The impressive thing that occurred about 25 years ago is that there was this conversation direct with brewers Uh, and growers about what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And at that same time, there was uh, a a breeder, one of our grower owners by the name of Jason Peralt, Uh who was, you know, learning from his mentor, a gentleman by the name of Chuck Zimmerman. And uh, Jason just had this insight, foresight, and true passion for something unique and different in some varieties. And uh, 22 years ago, he and Chuck worked together to bring to life and bring to the market a variety called Simcoe. Mm -hmm. At that same time, you know, uh, craft brewers here in the Northwest and in the West Coast and the U.S. were looking for something new and different to promote their IPAs and their pale ales. And it was really uh, just an opportune time for two passions to collide. Uh, and that started what I consider a real change in uh, how breeding was pursued with hop varieties and how these hop varieties were used in beer. And we've been riding that wave uh, ever since uh, with new varieties coming out all the time, new beer styles coming out and more and more conversations happening between directly between brewers and growers. And one thing that I'm sort of vaguely aware of, but not would love more insight into is like, you know, hop varieties, new, new varieties, you know, sort of start out as like, you see kind of like, a, you know, it's like a, like a barcode, right? It's kind of just like a, some letters and numbers. And then maybe if it's desired enough or, or successful enough, then it gets a name. Like who, who names them? Is that you guys? Is that the, like, who is responsible for giving them the names? Yeah, that's a good question. So It's an amazing process that it takes this year, this fall, we will cross tens of thousands of unique plants. Okay. And those will start the path. Uh, It'll take about three years to see if they are 
viable to be grown. So are they disease susceptible? Are they not? Uh, that usually takes about three years of a fast fail process. Um, after three years, then we start to plant them outside and okay. see if they're actually uh, agronomically viable. But it takes, it usually takes eight to 10 years for that initial cross to have a potential to make it to market. Okay. We're talking percentages of percentages of success rate. Wow. Um, and then, you know, we, we work together to uh, do some elite lines. Uh, they get uh, that number goes out into the world and you'll start to see some of these. Uh, we work through a program called the Hop Breeding Company, HBC. And uh, those numbers are out there now. So this year you'll see things like HBC 630 uh, is out there in the world. And it will be in this kind of elite line doing beer trials for, I don't know, two, three, four years before the brewers say, we want this so much that we decide to make it commercially viable throughout the globe. And then that's obviously something where growers, um, either your grower owners or, or maybe other growers in uh, maybe in the Valley or whatever can then access it. Like, or, or is it, or are these like crosses kind of held as a proprietary thing? Like, how does that work? Yeah, the varieties are proprietary. Um, and then they were distributed throughout uh, to different growers in different growing regions uh, within the Pacific Northwest uh, so that we can ensure that it's going to be viable, not only in Yakima, but in Oregon and in Idaho. Gotcha. And I want to talk a little bit more about um, harvesting since you're kind of in the midst of that and, and preserving hops. And maybe you can start with kind of when, when either whether, whether it was when Yakima Chief hops got started or just kind of historically how hops were preserved and now maybe some of the newer technologies that have been brought to bear. Yeah, it's important for, I think, everyone to know, and I would invite everyone to take a look or come to the Valley to watch this process. One of my favorite things about hop harvest is seeing someone who's never seen harvest, uh, seeing their experience when they have the aha moment of how much goes into harvesting hops, uh, putting them into a bale and uh, getting them to a place where it can get into beer. So these large binds, which are 14 feet tall, are cut uh, into the trailer uh, of a vehicle. Those are then transported to what we call a picking machine. A picking machine is on every farm and it separates the cones from the leaf and the, the bind. Okay. Uh, those are separated. That happens at the picker. Uh, from the picker, those cones will go into a kiln and you're taking a 70, 80% uh, moisture hop flour or hop cone and you're dropping that down to 10% moisture. Okay. Uh, that usually takes about six to eight hours in the kiln. And uh, once that occurs, then from the kiln, it is transferred into a different building where things are cooled and homogenized. Okay. And that usually takes about 20 hours um, in, uh, in a cooling room. Uh, once they're cooled, they're put into bales. Uh, most bales are 200 pounds, compressed bales. Okay. And those bales are then delivered to uh, Yakima Chief Hops, where they'll be stored and further processed into uh, through a pelletizing process or our cryo process, where we're actually taking those 
whole cones and separating them out into more advanced and some new technology that's come out in the past few years. And with that you know, sort of processing, what what is the, like, how much maybe just of the hop cone itself are you, is any of it, like, how much of it is lost? Like, what is retained in terms of, I don't know, whatever, mass? Obviously, you're losing water weight in the drying process. But, like, is it a meaningful, um, I don't know, like, do you, <laughs> does the yield reduce pretty significantly? Or is most of the hop cone usable for brewing? No, most of the hop cone is usable. Yeah, this is over a hundred years of different technology. Every year, innovations are occurring on the farm uh, through the harvesting processes, and then when they receive to to uh, an organization like ours, we we have very efficient processes to maintain good and solid efficiencies. Very cool. And then let's talk a little bit about the relationship with brewers, because obviously we've talked a lot about the growing side of it, and that's that's very interesting to me. But but obviously, you you know, you mentioned that Yakima Chief was founded to kind of, you know, directly foster these relationships between the growers and the brewers who are, you know, the, the people who are buying the hops. Are those things, is that done, like my frame of reference is much more for um, for for wine. And so I think about, you know, a lot of wine wineries will have long-term contracts with with a grower where you know they will you know they will maybe um have a a purchase arrangement based on you know like i said maybe many years of a relationship with breweries do you have the same kind of thing does a brewery say you know in in march or something hey we want you know x number of tons of simcoe and whatever other varieties you're growing or or is it more like things come in and then it's an open marketplace yeah it's both so our whole business is based on that relationship, that communication between the, the grower and the brewer. Um, and it's an ongoing relationship that is uh, for many brewers and growers, it, it's on the kind of family level, very close and intimate. Uh, this time of year, we host, this year we'll host almost 500 brewing customers okay. uh, here to the Valley for them to look at individual lots of hops that they want. And that's like custom processing okay. for these brewers. Um, and, and we work with brewers all over the globe. Uh, some of them go through this uh, selection process. Others of them uh, work through us to make sure that they're getting the hops that they need. Um, brewers are contracting into the future. Okay. So that's a, that's a great thing for the health and sustainability of this market. Uh, but it is it is a lot of very close and intimate um, conversations amongst brewers and growers, which is amazing. That didn't happen 30 years ago in this industry. And I think that, you know, a thing that I've been sort of personally interested in is sort of the idea that products like hops um, and, and other parts of beer and other parts of beverage alcohol can be maybe not completely removed from the commodity system. But one thing that does seem exciting is that whether it's more attention paid to individual varieties or these fostered relationships that you described, there is, there is a little bit of a, of a change in what I understand in, in brewing where, you know, the, the raw materials coming into the brewery are no longer just kind of interchangeable could be from anywhere. How do you kind of, connect whether it's with local you know um, washington state or pacific northwest breweries or or as you mentioned people around the world how do you kind of connect them to this idea of these specific hops from this particular place 
Yeah. So our process is uh, with that mission of connecting growers with brewers, also rooted in uh, you know insurance that there's traceability throughout the supply chain. So our systems can tell you exactly where a specific hop pellet or hop that's going into beer, which field it goes back to. So there's a lot of technology, there's a lot of documentation, a lot of uh, processes involved with that. And because our mission is to make those connections, we leverage a lot of that information um, to ensure that the brewer and hopefully the beer consumer knows where this stuff is coming from, where their hops are coming from. We are a value add organization, and we truly believe that that adds value to the brewer's dialogue with the beer consumer. Uh, and it definitely adds value to our hop growers to know where their uh, hops are going, which breweries are selecting them, what kind of beers they're making with them. Uh, it's more meaningful. And uh, that gets a lot of our growers through a very long, you know, 30, 35 day harvest season. And I know you you mentioned, um, or I guess two last things I want to talk about. One of them is we're kind of here in the Seattle area where I am and in the Pacific Northwest more broadly, we're in the sort of the the midst, in the, or I guess here kind of as we're recording this in the beginning of one of my favorite uh, times of year for beer, which is sort of fresh hop season. And obviously you have a whole process or, or a number of processes around getting the hops harvested and in a form that they can be usable throughout the year. Um, or, or maybe for years into the future. But there is a sort of special element to this idea of, of fresh hop beer, which maybe you can explain more more uh, accurately than I can. But does that require something different on the on the grower and harvester side? Oh, man, fresh hop beer season is incredible. Um, and so, yes, when we say fresh hops, it's basically those hop cones that are picked that are unkilled. So they're coming gotcha. directly off the bind and uh, transported into beer, uh, usually within 48 hours. So that's the, the proximity of time and, and closeness. So there is a pretty large time constraint because with, uh, with a fresh hop, it, it ages quite quickly, which gives these amazing and unique flavor profiles and aroma profiles for beer. And that's what we all get to experience here in the Pacific Northwest and, and throughout the U.S. You know, every year we ship uh, throughout the U.S., overnight shipping these uh, fresh hops and uh, amazing beers are made. So it's an exciting time. Um, we have just started a new product, which is a frozen fresh hop. We've taken okay. those fresh hops, deep froze them, and now they're going to be transported all over the globe. Wow. So what we get to celebrate uh, here in the Northwest with the seasonal beer will now be available to people uh, throughout the throughout the world. Fantastic. Just one last question, Ryan. As far as sort of the 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 health of the industry, it would seem to me that you know so that's you know like the most popular beer style of the last five years is is uh, you know has been hazy IPAs, which are my understanding you know very hop intensive. It certainly seems like demand is is very strong for hops. You would, you would know better than I do. Is there are there challenges in meeting that demand is, is there are there challenges in in just growing enough hops or 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 what if any are the challenges yeah there there's always challenges in in growing any agricultural product sure hops themselves are incredibly resilient plants you know this growing season late june we had 
temperatures of over 115 degrees for three days. Uh, and, and that seemed really uh, intense. It was intense. But these hop plants rebounded. And so we're really, really excited for a good harvest. Um, to keep up with demand, uh, our growers have done uh, what they can. They're doing great. And right now, with the conversations that we're having directly between growers and brewers, we have a much better handle and much better success at making sure that supply and demand is met. Very cool. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know it's, a, like I said, a very busy time of year for you, but fascinating to learn more about this crucial ingredient in beer that I think a lot of people, you know, they might know some of their favorite varieties, but they probably don't think a lot about how it's, uh, how it's grown and how it gets to, their, to the breweries near them. So again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey, Zach, thanks for making the time and thanks for being passionate about beer and hops. All right. That was awesome. So, you know, no hops, no hops left in the episode. We're, we're past the hop period. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to say that we were going to drink something with hops. I think that you would promise you were going to send us some like freshly hop beers. You clearly didn't make that happen. So I don't know what your pull is in, in, in the Washington area, but I don't have any fresh hop beer instead. In oh, I'm pretty sure you wanted to drink what we're drinking today. No, instead. I don't dude, but I'm going <laughs> to. So in front of us, it this needs a nice for Monday's episode, right? Yeah. Like, it needs no introduction, mm-hmm. right? It's the Bud Light Flannel Pack. <laughs> and uh, we're going to try all four flavors. We have a we have a, a tasting order that was determined by Joanna. It's going to be apple crisp, toasted marshmallow, maple pear, and then I'm not going to even talk about the last flavor. I, can't, <laughs> I, I don't want the words to come out of my mouth, so we'll just get there when we get there. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. But, um, wait, 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 wait. Before we start, predictions, which one you will like best and which one you will hate most? Yeah, sure. I'm going to for sure hate the last flavor the most. Okay. Uh, I don't know, Joanna, you make the prediction first, and then I'll say which one I think I'd like. But I'm going to for sure hate the last flavor the most. So I've tried them all, uh, full disclosure. (sighs) So I can predict, I think, what you would like best. Okay, go. I think think you'll like the maple pear best. I was going to say that that's the one I was going to like the best. Seems least offensive, right? Yes. I also think that's the one I will like the best, but I suspect I will dislike the toasted marshmallow most. Yeah. She's like, yeah, yeah. Does does this does it all taste like disappointment? Yes. Oh god. Okay. Well, like, look, no more, no more leading the witness. Okay, don't lead the witness. Let's let's also just revisit if hard seltzer will replace uh, cheap beer after we have this. Yeah, I think it's. (laughs) Well, I didn't say these hard seltzers specifically. (laughs) So I'm going to be really. uh, I'm going to do this. So uh, we're going to take this really seriously. Um, can number one, Bud Light, Seltzer, Apple Crisp. Ingredients, water, cold fermented cane sugar, natural flavors, cane sugar, citric acid, sodium citrate, malted rice. All right, let's go in. It definitely smells like Apple Crisp. Oh, yeah. It smells like apple juice. Hold on. Hold on. And cinnamon. A little spicy. And a little yeah. like. It smells like apple juice. Mm-hmm. It smells like apple juice. So then like just drink a cider. It's all right. I find this one to be inoffensive. This is gross. I don't think I want to finish it, <laughs> no. but you know, drinkable. This tastes like drinking a Yankee candle. Right. It's, it's yeah, that's what Joanna bitter. said a couple episodes ago. They all taste like candles. This one though is like real Yankee candle vibes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the one that's like burning in like a nursing home, like as you come in and it's like trying to just like keep the smell of death out. It's like, that's, <laughs> like, that's what, this is what this wow, tastes you're like. Leading, you're leading strong here. Okay. Wow. Let's, yeah. let's, are we ready to move on to toasted marshmallow? 
I had to taste it one more time just, I just to feel, save my life. I feel like it would have been fine, and there's just that bitterness that really was It's bad at the Well, there's like so, the, no, so the artificial is, flavor finish, right? right you right, can't right. dodge that. No, but so I'm curious because so I read, I'm reading the ingredients of each one on purpose, but so this was 100 calories. You'll notice that all three of the others have an ingredient in them that this one didn't. And usually why I hate a lot of these seltzers is because of this ingredient. So it's interesting that this doesn't have it. So next one, toasted marshmallow, and we'll reveal the ingredient. This is water, cold fermented cane sugar, natural and artificial flavors, citric acid, sodium citrate, so we're still the same, malted rice, but also stevia leaf extract. And so they do that to keep the sugar high, but the calories low. So for whatever reason, yeah. when they when they came up with the, the lovely recipe for apple crisp, they didn't need the stevia. It was like, all right, low in mm-hmm. calories. So and usually I hate it because it has that weird like aspartame. Mm-hmm. All right, so toasted marshmallow on again the, on smell mellow. Oh, pour so clear. This smells like rice krispie treats. It does smell like rice krispie treats, like really like white rice krispie treats. Ooh. I don't particularly love marshmallows, which is why I didn't think I would like this one, and um, my fears have been confirmed. Okay, I'm gonna hold on. We don't hate it. I have a bold thing to say. <laughs> you like this? I mean, it tastes like <laughs> it tastes weird. I don't like a diet cream soda. But vibe? The, the the rice krispie treat is an absolutely perfect call because mm. it's just it's just toasted mar- toasted rice and marshmallow. Dunkin' like, Donuts French here. vanilla iced coffee. Mm. Yes, you're right. That's oh. what it tastes like. It's it's not for me, but it tastes like Dunkin' Donuts French vanilla iced coffee. I would not drink the whole thing, but it does taste like Dunkin' Donuts French vanilla iced coffee. I mean, America runs on Dunkin', so. America does run on Dunkin'. Okay, water. Not out here. Okay, <laughs> so now, ap- maple pear, water, cold fermented cane sugar, natural flavors, malic acid, sodium citrate, citric acid, stevia leaf, malted rice, 100 calories. So this has a different ingredient also. This has the malic acid. It does, really yeah. make it taste more like pears. <sighs> oh, man. So this smells like. Um, it smells like shampoo. No, it smells like, well, maybe, but it, I don't know what your shampoo smells like, maybe maple, <laughs> but it smells like, um, there's like a weird kind of mushroom that like kind of tastes like maple syrup. Um, uh, and if you like, I remember we used to do like a weird, like a infusion of those mushrooms into whiskey back in a, like Pacific in the early days. Northwest of- flex. <laughs> and, Not and, all uh, that's just it's- out shrooming, Jack. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess not. Um, I've never yeah, heard yeah, of the maple like mushroom. Those. Yeah. Are you on mushrooms right now? <laughs> I am. Got, as far as I know, not. Hold on. Got, like, I am on not a whole lot of sleep, but we're good. Vaguely <laughs> celery aftertaste. Yeah, oh, I was trying to place yeah. It, like, I get that. Woody, celery, like a celery almost. Mm. I actually kind of like this. I'm, I think I'm correct. And we'll see what the pumpkin spice. I'm sorry, Adam. <sighs> the, the seltzer who shall not be named, but. People know. Oh, yeah. Those in the know know. Okay, so here's the deal. I don't get the appeal of any of these besides marketing so far, like just to get press because I don't know who would really love these, but I still think, you know, so far. You don't think young people would love these? Yeah, at a, like an ugly sweater party. Right, right. Like this is what you Yeah, I think you'd drink two of them party. and be and never buy it again. Yeah, and be like, oh my. But I think that that's the point, right? They got a ton of press around this and like it's. Yeah. They can do it. Okay. <sighs> so everyone already knows. Pumpkin <laughs> spice. We're going to let Keith open his too. Keith loves this flavor so much. I'm so excited. I hate this flavor. What's in it? You're going to read the ingredients? Yeah. Yeah. How much pumpkin is in it? Water, cold fermented cane sugar, natural flavors, citric acid, sodium citrate, stevia, malted rice. 
Hey, this one doesn't have any artificial flavors in it, so it's got that going for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this just smells. Oh, it smells like pumpkin loaf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Keith, Keith smells loves like, it. Smells like smells like sweater sweater weather. Oh my god, this is amazing! I think I'm actually with Keith. I actually like this one more than I thought I would. This tastes like um, eating a, eating a handful of pumpkin spice mix. This blend. is freaking gross. <laughs> freaking gross. Like this is. <sighs> I'm with you, Keith. That's actually the best one in the pack. <laughs> wow. This, this tastes the most artificial. Mm-hmm. It has the most stevia. It the spice is just like not doing it. It literally tastes like you have like a spiced loaf and you just liquefied it mm. and then you like mixed it and watered it down and added a bunch of just, you know, seltzer. sweet and low and then like mix it with seltzer and that's and you got this. It's this is Adam, you're you're going to have the Bud Light people after you for figuring out their secret recipe. I know. I don't like this, man. I mean, I, I go back to toasted marshmallow. There you go. I'm, I might be I might be team pumpkin spice, much to my surprise. I think they all capture their flavor very well, right? I guess. I just don't know that I want to drink yeah. a hard seltzer flavored. No. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that gets us back to the fundamental question right. of: Do you uh, actually want to drink any of these flavors in this format? It's fall fuckers. No. <laughs> like still that's... better than cacti, though. One hundred percent better than cacti. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That's I agree. That's with that. still the worst thing we've still drank. definitely better than cacti. But in a ranking so far, I put Snoop Dio Double G, huh? Yeah, Seltzer <clears throat> of the fall, i.e., not Twisted Tea Sandal Pack. Then I like Twisted Tea. Okay, I would probably put Twisted Tea under Snoop Deal Double G. Yeah. Then <laughs> this abomination, and then Cacti. Yeah, way down at the bottom. Yeah, it's pretty. Well, this is okay. Yeah, we we, yeah. Might, we could leave some space between you know above Cacti. We got to fill some other we'll stuff in. Other into, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who have tried the flannel pack, let us know what you think. You know, go out and get it. You might surprise yourself at how much you hate it, um, <laughs> or, or don't, or don't. Just not for me. Not for me either. Not for me either. Very much for Keith, though. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign off now. I'm <laughs> sad and alone. Hopefully, you got something else to drink. Let's go get a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye, on guys. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again. <laughs>